All right, our passage today, if you want to grab your Bible or scroll down your pad, is Matthew chapter 18. Today we're going to be looking at the parable of the unforgiving servant is what we're calling it this week. So the passage is Matthew 18. We're going to be going through verses 21 through 35. And if you are on a pad, uh, we do the English Standard Version. So the question we're going to ask every week as we are making our way through this series in the summer, behind me you can see through the parables of Jesus, is this, what is life like under the rule of Jesus? That is the, the chief question we're going to be asking and answering as we journey through the parables of Matthew and Luke. So what we remember about parables, what we learned last week is that they're short stories that teach a spiritual truth for us. This is what Jesus used to communicate. And what they do is they shine a light of truth into areas of your life, my life, that need to be exposed, right? Because there's areas of our life that need to be exposed constantly to the realities of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom, which we defined last week as the good life with Jesus. So when Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. What we're really saying is this is the good life that we have with Jesus since he came down to the earth and established his reign and rule. So if you are someone who has believed in Jesus, you've repented of your sins, you've turned from your sins, it means that you have woke up to the truth of the gospel. And not only have you woke up to the truth of the gospel, it means Jesus has become the new ruler of your life. Now, the implication of Jesus becoming the new ruler of your life is that it also means simultaneously that you have declared war over and against all of the other rulers of your life. That is what has happened. Now, when I was a kid, my mom used to do this literal bonkers crazy thing, all right? She used to come in my room in the morning when I couldn't wake up she would open the blinds and she would rub a freezing cold like washcloth over my face. And I, you know, so I jolt up, you know, with a wet face, slightly angry, uh, with the sun glaring in my eyes. And even though I still believe to this day that this act of torture should have been against the law, it woke me up. I mean, what she was attempting to do which was expose me to the light of day because I needed to begin to face the day. I needed to wake up. It was effective. It worked. And so the parables, what they will hopefully be doing is waking us up to who God is and what life is like now that his son Jesus is ruling in our hearts because that's supposed to be different. We're supposed to be living in a different reality than we did before that happens. And one of the things that we are to be woken up to is mercy and forgiveness. Two things that are incredibly complex for us. They create complexities in our mind that are incredibly difficult for us to do. And then what we'll see here from the passage is that without the mercy of God, almost impossible for us to do. So the context here as we look down at Matthew 18, is that the apostle Peter, in verse 21, asks Jesus an interesting question here. He says this. He says, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins 
against me. Now, Jesus had just spent some time telling everybody what sort of the procedure was to do when it came time to call out somebody on their sin. When you had to approach somebody who had sinned against you, there was a particular procedure that Jesus said, this is how you are to go about it. You're supposed to use witnesses. You're supposed to call the man or woman to repentance in the hopes that they will reconcile with you. So what happens after this illustration is Peter comes up and says, well, okay, Jesus, that's great. Here's my question. Then how many times should I even be forgiving my brother when he sins against me? And then Peter, being cute, right? Like Peter is, he says like seven times. Like, like that, that was the big-hearted, generous sort of number that Peter throws out at Jesus. He says like seven times. And Jesus replies, uh, not seven. Try 77, Peter. Now, now, Jesus wasn't being literal. He wasn't saying, well, man, just keep counting. And when you hit 77, like, that's it. Just turn around, walk out, you're done. Your work there is done. That's not what he was saying. He was trying to illustrate a larger point that we're going to see. But again, Peter thinks he's being this big-hearted, generous guy because actually what would happen back in Jewish culture of the time is that you might forgive your brother three times. They put limitations on this, right? But if that same brother sinned against you for the fourth time, you were, uh, in a sense, able and obligated to walk away and refuse forgiveness. Now, look, from our perspective, especially if you're somebody who has grown up in Sunday school, Peter's question, it, it feels funny and it feels flawed. And we can kind of stand back and go, yeah, really, Peter? I mean, you walked into that one. I mean, you should have known what you were seeing when you asked him that, right? We're kind of like the annoying kid in class who was always the first to raise their hand when the teacher asked the question, right? Like, no, I got, I got this one. Like, we think that when we hear Jesus's, uh, Peter's question to Jesus, right? So the easy answer to Peter's question is, well, of course, man, we always forgive. When somebody asks forgiveness, we always forgive. That's not necessarily wrong. The problem is, is that we don't always do it. The problem is that there's something inside of us that actually prevents us from doing it. And on the, on the opposite side, you might be someone who didn't grow up in, in Sunday school. And uh, when you see and when you're faced with this question, it might be a little more nuanced to you. You might think, no, I don't see it that way. I don't see that we just give forgiveness, just lavish it on everybody. Um, it needs to be earned. There needs to be a way and a place for me to come to a place where I can forgive somebody. So here's the thing, for all of us, and maybe more in the former, for us Sunday schoolers, what we know in practice is that mercy and forgiveness is unnatural and it's inconvenient. Mercy and forgiveness, extending forgiveness to people, it feels unnatural, it kind of wars against our soul, and it's always inconvenient. Why? Because it's costly. It creates conflict in our souls, which is why Peter is asking the question that our lives are actually answering most of the time, which is, do I? How many times? Should I? Do I have to forgive? That's actually sort of the reaction that our hearts have towards people that have wronged us. Now, what this parable is going to reveal as we dive in is three realities to us about mercy and forgiveness. Number one is that it is surprisingly costly. Surprisingly costly. Number two, it can be dangerously withheld. And number three, it's a test of one owns one's own transformation. Number one, it's surprisingly costly. Let's dive right into the text. Verse 23, it says this, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Let's just stop right there. So we have the story of a man who's just racked up some astronomical debt. He owed 10,000 talents, it said, and a talent would have been the largest unit of currency available at that time in the ancient world. So when we think about 10,000 talents in our time with inflation, it would have literally been like something over a billion dollars. Just like one of these bonkers, I can't even comprehend it kind of amounts. But we can kind of understand this a little bit, right, in our era of credit and credit cards and credit card debt, right? We can understand how things can get easily stacked up, right? I mean, just that you get that nice little innocent, you know, letter in the mail. Hey, we'd like to offer you a credit card with a, just a nice, easy $500 limit. So you go, all right, I, nobody ever got in trouble over $500. So you, you get the credit card and then pretty soon you just start getting these emails and these letters and pretty soon they're like, hey, we put like a hundred grand on that thing because you are so great at paying us on time. And before you know it, there's nothing left on that credit card because you're enjoying the fruits of what it means to spend money that you don't have. I'm not making an indictment against credit cards right now at all, at all, right? But we understand how somebody can accumulate debt. We understand what it's like to get to a place sometimes with things where we can't pay what we owe. So this servant, he couldn't pay what he owed. So the master, the king, ordered him, his wife, his kids, and all of his possessions to be sold into slavery. Like, we don't get to do that now, right? We don't just say, you know, I can't pay the Discover bill, so uh, just come take the wife and the kids away and we'll be clear. Everything will be fantastic. We don't get to do that anymore. Now, just to be clear, the master was not going to make back what he owed from the sale, right? Like, in other words, the sale of the man, his possessions, his wife and his children, that was not going to equal the over billion dollar debt that he had with the king. He was basically going to take a bath on the amount that he had loaned the man. The point is that this man had gone into debt with a sum of money so large that it was impossible to pay back. So picture in your mind a man who had just reached total financial ruin. Maybe some of you guys can really relate to that. Maybe some of you who are a little bit older in here, you look back and you had some of those moments or maybe one particular moment in your life where you just hit the bottom financially. But this is a man who had reached financial ruin, unpaid debt, no ability to pay, and no option to even declare bankruptcy. It was different back in those days. His master, the king, was holding all the power. So the man falls on his knees. He does the only thing he knew how to do. He falls on his knees and he pleads for patience. Just give me a minute, I'll pay it back. But again, there was no human way this man could have possibly paid back that amount. And so the problem becomes that the master knows this. The master knows that the man's debt exceeds his ability to pay it back in his lifetime. So he does something surprising, actually. He does something costly. He has pity. He has pity on the man that owed him his life, and he forgives the man his debt. The reason it's surprising is that he wasn't obligated to do it. The reason it was costly was because he would now have to absorb the cost. 
So given this reality, the depth of mercy the master extends, man, it's unexpected. And it's actually kind of shocking. And again, if you don't believe me, try pleading with your mortgage lender this week, right? Try pleading to your credit card company and see if they for, forgive, forgive your debt. Seriously. Like FaceTime Discover card this week. Get on your knees and see if they just say, you know what, just, we're going to let it go. We're just going to forgive you the entire debt. All of it, it's gone. Go on your way. That's just not going to happen. And it sounds ridiculous to even think that we would attempt something like that. But this master, this particular king, was different. Now, we want to make sure that we make a connection between the master and God the Father. Because that's the illustration that we're giving here. This is meant to point to something of greater debt in our lives. Romans 6.23, remember what it tells us. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. In other words, a person's sin is a debt that earns them death. It's a wage that earns them death. But God comes in and he reverses the charges and he puts them on his son. He puts all your charges on his son. And what we know about this, what we know about this level of mercy is that it's costly. It was costly for God. And it actually reveals two things about God in that costliness. It reveals, number one, that God has more mercy than man has debt. God has more mercy than man has debt. You notice this. Notice this in the story. The master does not design a payment plan for his servant. He doesn't do that. Think all the way back to the one that sinned before all others sinned, Adam. When Adam sinned, what did God do? Well, I'll tell you what he didn't do. He didn't design a plan for Adam to work his way back into God's favor. Doesn't, you know, pay me this much a week, and then, you know, you'll accrue this, and we'll add the interest here, and I'll take away some interest here. No, 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 none of that was put into the plan. He didn't design that kind of plan for Adam or us. Instead, God said, I have a plan to actually clear your debt. Not only that, it was already in place, brother. It was already in place before the foundation of the world. Because I knew you were going to need this kind of a plan to clear your debt. So God has more mercy than man has debt. And what an amazing thing for us to even start grappling with so early in the parable. Secondly, Jesus is God's demonstration of his undeserved mercy. Remember the scene on the cross when Jesus is dying on the cross? He has the two thieves that are dying with him, one on each side. One of the thieves is mocking him. And the other thief comes to him and says, will you remember me? The other thief says, will you have mercy on me? I see what's really going on here is that I owe a debt that I can't pay, but you don't. And by virtue of you hanging on this cross, you are the one that is actually paying my debt. He saw that. In that moment, his eyes were open to that. He knew he had no ability to do anything to pay back his debt of sin. He was dying. And he would die. But he is saved from spiritual death when he asks Jesus to remember him and have mercy. Man, this changes everything when we apply this to ourselves. When you see the depth of your indebtedness to God because of your sin, the mercy he supplies to you to free you from death through the death of his own son is shocking. It's surprising. It's costly. 1 Peter 1.3 tells us, according to his great mercy, 
He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His great mercy. It doesn't say his half-hearted mercy. It doesn't say, you know, just the mercy that he decided to throw at you when he woke up a little late that morning and he hadn't had his coffee yet. Mercy. This was great mercy. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11 says, hey, remember who you are. This is Peter talking to a church going through just a fair amount of suffering. And he says, hey, remember who you are. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people of his own possession. And then he goes on to say, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. He said once you had not received mercy. So he's taking them through this past tense, present reality. Once you had not received mercy, but then he says, now you have received mercy. So mercy is surprisingly costly because of what God had to do to make it available and effective for us. So it's costly. Secondly, it can also be dangerously withheld. Let's pick up in verse 28. It says this, But when that servant, servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. I think that's how you pronounce it. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. Verse 30, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Let's stop there because now it just gets crazy. Now it just goes to a place that generally you would not expect us to go given the kind of mercy, given the kind of experience that this brother had just had. So with his newfound and debt-free freedom, right, the first thing he does, and look at this guy, the first thing he does is he seeks out someone who owed him a hundred denarii, which again, we don't want to discount the amount. That was a decent amount of cash for the time, Okay but it was nothing. It was maybe a few months' wages, but it was nothing compared to the amount of cash that this dude was just forgiven of. And what's so interesting to us is to see the pattern of events that unfolds in his action here, especially when you consider how gentle the king, the master, had just treated this guy. The patience that he was shown to plead his case and how he was listened to before he was shown mercy and then released, forgiven of his debt. But he doesn't return that kind of mercy. In fact, it's about as opposite as you can possibly get. He has this, just this violent response. He seizes the man, grabs a hold of him. He chokes him. I mean, he gets violent with him. And he demands payment. Again, something that this man pleading his case would have been able to pay. It was an amount that was doable. So the most forgiven man on the planet right now was now in just a total fit of rage. And his servant pleads for patience, just like he had done moments before. But the man wouldn't extend mercy, so he has him locked up in debtor's prison. Now the problem is that it didn't go unnoticed. His fellow servants, his fellow co-workers noticed 
And they told the master what happened. And when it was told what happened, his master says, you wicked servant, I had mercy on you. Like, do you have that short of a memory? Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? So what happens is the master then gives him what he deserves for his lack of mercy. He delivers him to the jailers. Now, this wasn't just jailers. Another word would be he delivered him up to be tortured, to pay for the lack of mercy that was extended to him that he had now failed to extend to a brother who owed him so much less. So the man who was forgiven over a billion dollars of debt, I know it's hard for us to get that figure in our, in our heads, but for a guy that was forgiven that degree of debt, refuses to forgive the debt of someone who owed him so much less. And in this case, mercy was dangerously withheld. It cost him way more in the end. And he struggled to forgive, didn't he? He struggled to forgive. That forgiveness that had been given to him, it wasn't natural for him. It wasn't convenient for him. He struggled to forgive because his master's mercy had changed. Listen, had changed his predicament, but it hadn't penetrated his heart. That's what was going on here. Mercy is saying this, okay? Mercy, which is not getting what you deserve, this is what mercy is saying when it comes time for us to extend it. It's saying, I'm willing to be wronged so that we can be right. It's saying and recognizing the justice you deserve before serving others with justice. That's what mercy looks like when we are practically showing it to others. Psalm 18, 25 through 27 tells us, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, listen to what he says, with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes, you bring down. You bring down. So it's sobering. This is sobering. Because mercy can be dangerously withheld. And when it is, what it turns out to be is number three, a test of one's own transformation. Look what it says in verse 35 here at the end. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. This is Jesus speaking, okay? So get whatever picture you have of Jesus, whatever opinion you have of Jesus, and however it's been formed by your own thoughts about him, by pop culture, from other churches who preached a particular Jesus that was just kind and cozy and comfortable and always standing there ready to stroke your back. Here's what Jesus says. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And there's not a lot to be misinterpreted there. Jesus is being very serious about the question that Peter asked him about, how many times do I forgive? Peter says, oh, you want to chat about forgiveness? Let's chat. Let's chat about how serious it really is. Those who have been forgiven must forgive. That's the big idea here. Or else they show, listen, that they have not received forgiveness themselves. Because forgiveness is a matter of the heart. It's an inner working. It's an inner change. It's an inner transformation. What we know about God is that 
He is merciful. But what we also know about God is that His mercy is not unlimited. His mercy is not unlimited. God says in Exodus 33, 19, when He was talking to Moses, He makes this statement. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. God's mercy didn't extend to this servant forever. In the end, when it was proven that he'd used God's mercy for selfish gain, what happened? God gave him justice for his lack of mercy. So Jesus ends the parable with a warning. And this illustrates to us just how merciful God is. What do you mean? How do you say that? If he withheld his mercy at the end, how does this show us how merciful God is? Well, because if God is as merciful as his word tells us he is, he cannot possibly accept those who are devoid of it. That's why. So God extends mercy, but if it's not mercy that penetrates and breaks the heart of those who receive it, and they only receive it for selfish gain, then that's somebody who doesn't have a place in God's kingdom. So I want to close with three implications for us to take home today as we look at mercy, we look at forgiveness, we think of ourselves as being part of a church body who inevitably will come into conflicts. We will be called upon to forgive. We will experience things in our lives outside of the church body that God is still calling us to forgive. Why is that hard? Well, because in our flesh, mercy is unnatural. And in our flesh, mercy is inconvenient. But here's three things as we look down at this passage, three implications. Number one, Jesus wants you to know something about the depth of your debt. Jesus wants you to know something about the depth of your debt. The parable is supposed to reveal something about the state of mankind, which is that we are all in trouble. We're in trouble like this man was in trouble. This brother was in trouble. All through Scripture, we see men and women who come face-to-face with God, and what's the situation? They're in trouble. Remember the story of Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain murders his brother Abel out of jealousy. God comes to him and says, Cain, what have you done? The blood of your brother is crying out to me. Cain was in trouble. What about the story of David? From 2 Samuel 12, after he'd slept with Bathsheba, after he'd gotten her pregnant, after he killed her husband to try to cover it up, the prophet Nathan comes and says, David, what about men that do things like you just did? He gave him an illustration. What should we do to men that murder and commit adultery? And David said, we should just get rid of them all. We should kill them. What does prophet Nathan say to David? He says, you are the man. Not like, you are the man, David. It was, you are the man, right? He's in trouble. He's in trouble. What about Peter in Luke 22? Now, if he's all cocky with Jesus the night before, oh, Jesus, I would die for you. You bring me anywhere. I'm the one that's going to step up. If it means death, that's how faithful I am to you. Jesus goes, again, Peter, cute, but you're going to deny me before the rooster crows three times. Peter denies him. The rooster crows. He sees Jesus. Jesus looks him in the eyes. 
He turned and he looked at Peter. Peter was in trouble. Our debt to God because of our sin means that all of us are in trouble. All of us need mercy. All these men I just described needed mercy. And you know what saved people? You know who they really are? They're just people who have come to a gracious realization of the gravity of their sin. That's what's going on. They've come to a gracious realization. This brother here, at the beginning of the parable, there was no gracious realization. You guys have all had gracious realizations of things in your life of which it was hard to confront and face, but you're so glad you did. I remember when I walked downstairs a few years ago into my basement, and it was dark, and I just stepped into this big pool. I thought, like, so we came from California. They don't do basements out in California because they have these things called earthquakes. That's the last place you want to be, like when an earthquake's happening is in a basement. There's no basements. So we're like these basement rookies, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go get that thing out of the, you know, and I just come sliding into the basement, just, you know, literally falling underwater. I'm a, why is this water in here? And my wife goes, because it's raining outside. And I think that little pump thing that's supposed to be working isn't working anymore, right? And I said, oh, what are those called? So we learned all about that, right? We learned all about that. It was a gracious realization because the water was like this, but it wasn't this. It wasn't this. And some guy came in at 10 o'clock at night, charged us $27,000 and fixed it. It was awesome. (laughs) We'd like to reverse that whole basement trend that's going on here. Think back on the friend or the family member or the preacher who said something that caused you to come to a gracious realization about the depth of your debt. Think about that in your life right now. Take a second. Let your mind reflect back on that. Maybe, maybe something is happening to you right now by God's grace. I remember Melissa, we, uh, years and years ago when we became members of this church we were at, she was, uh, she was, part of the, we were, she was in the membership class with me, and she had that same kind of encounter. She had a gracious encounter with her sin and the mercy that God had given to her. She'd grown up in church. She'd grown up in Sunday school. She knew the right answers. She even knew the depth of her sin intellectually. But there was something that was said that was presented to her in that moment that made her realize the depth of her indebtedness and how much she needed the depth of the mercy that was available to her by God. And you know, this is not only a realization for salvation, but this realization is supposed to extend to our lives, right? What did we talk about last week? Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give you life more abundantly. And what happens is when you've got a people who have been reconciled to God by God's mercy and their eyes are open to the depth of their debt, you know what you get? You get a group of people that aren't so critical. You get a group of people that aren't so self-righteous about the depth of other people's debt because they see how deep it is in their own life. doesn't mean you don't call other people out when you have that level of relationship with them. It means that you are understanding. It means that you are compassionate. It means that there is a way that you communicate the mercy of God to others because you constantly are aware of the depth of the debt you owe that was paid for. Number two, you can benefit from God's mercy without being broken by it. You can benefit from God's mercy without being broken by it. Now, let's be clear, all right? Jesus is not saying God's forgiveness of you depends on your forgiveness of others. 
We're not earning God's forgiveness. So what he's saying is if you have cultivated and developed a heart of unforgiveness throughout the entirety of your life, that says something about whether you've actually received forgiveness from the Lord because forgiveness from the Lord actually changes us and allows us to forgive. Do we do that perfectly? Absolutely not. The question is, do you have a heart that's been broken by God's mercy? That's the question that's being asked here. God shows mercy all the time to people who benefit from it, but have never been broken by it all the time. This illustration, the dude benefited from it, but he wasn't broken by it. But until God's mercy transforms your heart, not just your circumstances, you'll never have a truly merciful heart that reflects God's nature. So way back in the day, one of the worst summers of my life, I got my third speeding ticket, and I got my license suspended a week before summer. I was 16. I had a girlfriend. It wasn't Melissa. I'm not looking at her right now when I say that. I wasn't super, I wasn't super hyped about that at all. Thankfully, this is not a disqualification for ministry, okay? I was sad. I was angry. But I should have been happy. Let me tell you why I should have been happy. Because I never received the amount of tickets I actually deserved. If I had, I wouldn't be driving today. That's the reality of it. You will use mercy for self-gain or you will gain the nature of God when he shows you mercy. We go one of two ways because God's mercy it leads us to something. It leads us towards callousness like this man, or it leads us towards confession, which is, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Because someday mercy runs out for those who benefit from it for selfish gain. There's a limit to God's mercy. And this is just a massive warning for us. If we've let bitterness overrun, overtake our souls, and we're holding it perpetually against another brother or sister, we need to back up, we need to take stock. We need to see if there's something stirring inside us that says, no, I don't want to feel that way. I'm remembering now what God has done for me, and I know that this doesn't please him, and I know that I need to be brokenhearted over this. Matthew 5, 7, this was Jesus preaching his Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In James chapter 2, verse 13, he says, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. There's a better way, and that is life under the good rule of Jesus. If you show up every week, I need you guys to listen. We're almost done. If you show up every week to substance, you are benefiting from God's mercy. All of this, all of this is a benefit of God's mercy. This warehouse is a walking monument of God's benefactors of his mercy, right? But that doesn't mean you've been, been broken by it just because you're hanging out around it. So the call for us this morning, because we can benefit from God's mercy without being broken by it, is to become broken, is to become broken by it. So one, Jesus wants you to know something about the depth of your debt. Two, you can benefit from God's mercy without being broken by it. And finally, by God's mercy, you are given God's nature to show mercy. 
The most important thing to know about the unforgiving servant was this. Ultimately, he despised his master's mercy because his heart was not broken for his master. That's really what was going on right here. He didn't have a love for his master. You notice he never pleaded for mercy. He never pleaded for mercy. He just pleaded for more time. But he didn't plead for mercy because he didn't really know his merciful master. So for us today, what we know is that the work of Jesus on the cross, what it does is it removes any justification that we think we have for withholding forgiveness. And instead, it gives us the heart to forgive. It gives us the heart to forgive. Colossians 3, 12 through 13 says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must, he says, forgive. And then John 1, 4, 19 through 21 tells us, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the good life with Jesus. Brothers and sisters extending mercy and forgiveness to one another because they've been freed from the debt of sin by God's mercy. This is what life is like now under the rule of Jesus. This is what life is like. And not only that, but this forgiveness, this brokenness that exists in us because of God's mercy. You know what it is? It's a testimony to a lost world who is going to fight and to hold on to everything they have in an attempt to never forgive, an attempt to always hold grudges, and to attempt to get what they feel is coming to them. What a testimony for the world to see a church that would rather be wronged than to always get what they think they have coming for them because mercy is better, because mercy reveals the mercy that we have in Christ. Okay, so I want to clear up some misconceptions then as we end about mercy and forgiveness, okay? Because this, this causes us to ask a lot of questions, and in your community groups this week, I want you to ask a lot of those questions, okay? But here, here's, a, here's an opportunity for us to deal with some of those questions that might pop up in you. The Bible doesn't say that a person can do whatever they want against you, and you're supposed to just smile, take another one for the team, pretend it never happened, and like all of their Instagrams, right? That's really not what it's saying here. Forgiveness is so much deeper than that. What the Bible does say is that whenever someone comes to you and repents, you forgive because you remember that the debt you've been forgiven is small compared to the debt that you're asked to forgive. Tim Keller says, an unforgiving heart is an unforgiven heart. We have to remember that. We have to always be asking ourselves the question, what's locking me up inside? What's preventing me from extending that forgiveness? So, we always forgive when someone asks. 
Two, we always go to someone and ask forgiveness when we've sinned against them. And three, when someone sins against us and refuses to repent, we need to let them go. We need to let them go, but we also need to leave an open door, understanding that there's never any guarantee of reconciliation. So what you can do in your own heart is you can extend forgiveness to someone who asks to be forgiven. And you can go to somebody seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. If they choose not to give it, then you can have peace with the Lord knowing that you've done in your heart everything that you can do. Because forgiveness is not without its complexities. And it's not clean. Okay? Because that brings up the final question here for us, which is, what if we can't forgive? And some of you might be saying in your heart right now, like, Ronnie, do you, do you know what's happened to me? Do you realize the ways that I've been sinned against? I, mean, I don't. But I believe it's a real thing. And I believe that for us to just stand up here, all glib and say, just go ahead and forgive because you've been forgiven. I realize that it's more complex than that. Because you have a soul that is warring against things. And you've got a soul that is deeply wounded. And a deeply wounded soul makes it very hard for you to extend even the mercy that you know that you've been given and forgiven with. So what this leads us to understand, and I just want you all to hear this, for some of you who are thinking, okay, I, I feel I'm bottlenecked now. I don't know what to do. Well, listen to this. Forgiveness is a process. Forgiveness is a process. But listen, it's a process that progresses as one pursues Jesus. So pursue Jesus in the process of forgiveness because it never will come outside of a pursuit of Christ. And then in time, he will grant you the ability to forgive in the way that you have to forgive. Okay? So there is a black and whiteness about this, but we also realize that our hearts aren't so black and white and they're mucky and we struggle through things. We struggle even with forgiveness, but we struggle with forgiveness as we bring it to Christ in our pursuit of him and he does something inside of us that allows us to feel his mercy so great that we extend it to the degree that we're able to extend it. And guess what? God still loves us. He still delights in us. And he still grows us in those things that even we struggle with. Amen? Do you hear me when I say that? When we take communion this morning, we are visibly acting out God's mercy this morning. There was probably never a better sermon that I could have preached that connects us better to communion than the unforgiving servant. Because what we're doing now here in a minute is we're acting out the mercy we have received from Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We eat his body. We are drinking his blood to symbolically visualize the debts that Jesus went to pay for our debt, which, as we found out this morning, is deep. So this kingdom of God, this good life with Jesus, it's comprised of, two, of one kind of people, repenters and forgivers. Repenters because we've pleaded with Jesus on our knees to forgive us our debts. And then forgivers because we forgive those who have sinned far less against us than we have sinned against God. And this makes us a reconciled people. 
A reconciled people who reconcile with people. Not for selfish gain, but out of brokenheartedness for the reconciliation that we have received. And I forgot how to say that word. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of my mercy on the cross that you have received. John 6, 53 through 56 tells us, truly, truly I say to you, Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You don't even have the ability then to extend the kind of mercy we've been talking about. And then he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the extent of God's mercy. He says this, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That was the problem with the unforgiving servant is that the very nature of God, the very forgiveness of Christ was not abiding in him. Now remember, we don't take communion to be saved. We take it because we are saved. We take it to celebrate our transfer from death to life. This is the family of God reminding one another of what made them the family of God. Which is why if you're here and you have not answered the call for repentance. We ask that you would do that. We ask that you would hear the words of Jesus. You would see the depth of your debt, that you would go to him in repentance and you would receive salvation because of Christ's work on the cross. We ask that you would and plead that you would recognize your debt, that you would humble yourself, that you would believe that Jesus canceled your debt because this is the gospel. This is the good news. These are the only words we have to preach here every Sunday that are worth anything. If that's not you this morning, we'd ask that you would just please abstain from taking communion with us, but please consider the good news that God offers you today because it's on offer. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray, and while I pray, the ushers will come forward, and then we will come up to receive the bread and the cup while the band sings for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your great mercy to us. We thank you that it's new every morning. And this morning, once again, it is offered to us. It is offered to those who see the depth of their debtedness to sin. So God, forgive us of our sin. We pray to you as a church, recognizing that even if we've been forgiven, we still fall short. And we still need your cleansing. We still need to become more like you. So God, continue to do that work in our lives. Let us be a people that extends forgiveness and mercy quickly. And for those of us who are having a hard time because we've been sinned against in maybe some unimaginable ways, Lord, we pray that you would help us. You would help us over time to be able to extend forgiveness and so that your mercy would do a work in us that would give us peace and that would give us relief and that would remind us, Lord, that in you all things have been made new and we are new again in you. So God, as we come to the table this morning, let us remember what our true food is, what our true drink is, what our true nourishment is. Thank you that you said when we do this, you will be in our presence. Thank you that you said this is how the church comes together to show that the kingdom of God has come. And that the good life of Jesus has been established and is being 
lived out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.